Good morning, everyone. How are you all doing? Well, this, um, this morning I'm going to introduce you a person. It's a privilege of mine. And I think we randomly bumped into somewhere and in some mission circles, and uh, we just clicked and started working together. Uh, Omar is a good friend of mine, and uh, um, one of the things of Omar is that not only he has written this book, Defining Success, which he'll be talking about it more, is that Omar has been to, I think, over 21 countries, and uh, he's grappled with this idea of success from the slums of Nairobi to the wealthy country like Australia. Omar served as a, a medical doctor and as an entrepreneur, um, as a CEO of a mission agency, <coughs> and uh, also a, a, as a pastor, a minister in, in a church. So it's a wonderful opportunity to hear from him this morning. Um, so I want to uh, get you up here, Omar, and um, ask you a few questions, um, some difficult ones. I'll put you on the Sure. Now. You can ask any questions you like. But I might choose not to answer it. <laughs> That's Omar. Um, Omar, <laughs> tell us a bit about your family. Yeah, um, so a bit, bit of background. When I sometimes joke, uh, it, it is a joke that I'm CIA, uh, nothing to do chasing terrorists. I, I got somebody woke up when I said about the CIA. <laughs> um, I'm ethnically Chinese. I was born in Indonesia at the age of 10. Our family emigrated to Australia, so I'm Chinese, Indonesian, Australian. But we came to Australia in early 70s. Now, I know some of you weren't born back then, but way back then, it was the white Australia immigration policy era. Obviously, I'm not white, so first couple of years of high school, I was the only non-white in my year. I got bullied a lot, and as you can see, I'm not very big. I didn't learn Kung Fu, so I couldn't bash these people who were bullying me. <laughs> some lunch times, I'd just be on my own because that way I didn't get bullied. And you might wonder, how does somebody who was so bullied, wounded, uh, withdrawn, eventually be comfortable, be able to speak in public? I've been on radio and TV and eventually wrote a book. Um, well, the key of it is that somewhere along the line, God revealed himself to me. Uh, I was able to connect with the real Jesus of the Bible and experience his transformation as we talk about. So now I am quite comfortable talking in public. I still am afraid. I still get people after I preach, they come and uh, criticize my sermon or whatever, but I'm, I'm getting used to it now. Uh, and so that's just part of my journey. I went to Africa to study the Bible because by then God had opened my eyes to the world that there are millions and millions of people who've never heard of Jesus. And um, I thought if I studied in Africa, I would learn the culture and be more relevant to the people there, rather than learn Western theology, and then when I'm there, I've got to learn what the, how to connect with them in a relevant way. And um, as God leads these things, I met my wife in Kenya. To further diversify my life, she's American. <laughs> so our kids are confused. <laughs> I can only tell that joke when there's no kid present. Um, because they do get mad at me when I joke that way, because uh, they are well-adjusted young adults. And uh, in Australia now, over a third of their generation, they're in their 20s, actually have multiple heritage. Uh, so ironically, the very school I got bullied at became a private, uh, not a private, a selective school. And so two of my kids went there, and um, lo and behold, over half of the students are Asians. And so they didn't get bullied, um, and my last one actually bullied others, but anyway. 
that's, that's, another, that's another issue. So I said, son, how could you do that? <laughs> but he was bullied too. I think the reality of it is most people have been bullied somewhere and most of us have bullied others somewhere along the way so that there's a forgiveness for all. Yeah. Uh, that was a long answer. So yeah, I've got right. three young adult kids. Uh, one is married, another one is serving in the Middle East and she recently married, um, met an American and they're going to get married in that Middle Eastern country. Um, and so people joke, she's just following your footsteps, so how could you, you know, be upset that she's getting married out there rather than in Australia? But anyway, uh, that's part of the journey. And our yeah. last born works for a finance company. Yeah. Thanks, Omar. Uh, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that we can learn and hear, and especially as you talk about this book. Uh, and even on Tuesday at 7 o'clock, uh, Omar is running a workshop here. Uh, talking more about what success really means. Um, uh, I mean, if we go to, uh, I was talking to a person who comes for a, um, uh, uh, to get a um, hampers, and he said, oh, I'm the, slum of, uh, I'm the scum of the earth. And I said, Matt, you have no idea what a scum of the earth is. Uh, I've seen people fighting for a loaf of bread uh, with pigs and dogs, chasing them off and eating the uh, slice of bread that's full of uh, fungus and all that. And um, don't tell me you're the scum of the earth. You know, there's people living in other parts of the world which are more worse beyond that. Uh, well, Omar, I'll hand over to you. I'll just pray for you and sure. this morning that we'll <clears throat> have a good time. The Holy Spirit will speak to us in our hearts. Uh, Father, we thank you for Omar and his life and his ministry. And Lord, as he shares with us this morning, we pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts. And uh, Lord, for those of us who are online and are watching us, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, make this word a special, a blessing for us. Thank you, Jesus. We commit Omar into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Sam. You didn't ask me any hard questions. I mean, that's the key. You just dazzled them with lots of long answers. They, they can't ask any hard questions. You want me to get your so. theological questions? <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Pastor Tim and the leadership of Rivers Church for the privilege to share God's word with you. Uh, so this is the second part of the transformation track. And um, so we talk often about following Jesus as a journey. What comes into your mind when I just said that, that following Jesus is a journey? I hope you're not thinking of some comfortable, cushy cruise that you're sightseeing and spectating. But I wonder how many of us, if we're honest, that's the picture. You know, didn't Jesus, didn't he come so that we might have abundant life? give us health, wealth, prosperity. Now, I would like to raise, do we have these wrong images? So this is uh, somewhat of a better picture, that it's, it's hard, you could see like a bushwalk, I love bushwalking, uh, but even this picture is not, it's hard to capture all the images, like all the concept onto an image. The problem I have with this picture, what do you see? One person. Now, as we heard Pastor Tim said last, month, we need to follow Jesus, experience this transformation track in community, right? Because it's an arduous, challenging journey. You cannot do it on your own. Now, the other challenge about this transformation track is that a lot of the journey is unseen. It happens on the inside of us, our minds, our values, our character. And it's got to be from the inside out. 
So the theme for today with this transformation track, if you um, go on their site and all that, is the theme of Lent and letting go. So Lent, letting go, redefining success according to Jesus. You might be thinking, what does Lent and redefining success got according to Jesus, what's the connection? So I'm glad you asked. See, that would have been a hard question, Pastor Sam, because <laughs> it'll take me 30 minutes to explain that. Lent. Um, anybody here practice Lent? It, I, I go to a Baptist church in Sydney. I have never heard a sermon on Lent. Um, anybody practice Lent? Just put your hands up. A few of you. Good on your Pastor Tim. So it's, it's, it's good that your pastor is practicing Lent. Um, because it's not in my tradition as, as a Baptist. It's more popular, I think, or uh, practiced more commonly among Catholics or Anglicans, but I think it's a good concept. So while I have not practiced Lent, I do believe in fasting, in um, sacrificing in order to pray, to connect with God. And then I'll talk a bit more about not just fasting from food, I will talk about fasting from shopping. So if you want to be really challenged with the concept of Lent, is to fast from shopping. So Lent is an ancient tradition. It started, maybe got uh, conceptualized in 325 AD uh, at the Council of Nicaea. Um, but the practice of it is to be in that space. So it's often done 40 days leading up to Easter. So if you were to practice it, you would have already been doing it. But it's counter our culture, right? I mean... Our culture, the marketing is, is always, you know, life is about you. You're the most important. Enjoy life. Have a good one. All these cliches. And that's where following Jesus is really hard in our culture. We get bombarded with all these messages that life is about me. I'm the most important. And so I wonder whether we have blind spots, even as we try to follow Jesus. So I've suggested one blind spot could be if your image is a comfortable, cushy cruise. Well, the other um, blind spot could be related to our middle class values. Let's see if, I, if I'm pressing the right arrow. That's it, okay. How do you know what blind spots you might have concerning the transformation track or concerning the change Jesus, the transformation Jesus wants to do from the inside out? By definition, you don't know your blind spot, right? And again, I'm emphasizing community. We need others to show us our blind spots. Two people that have regularly showed my blind spots are my wife, and my daughter, she's quite courageous. She's probably the most courageous of our kids. Uh, if I have hurt her, she would say, Dad, that wasn't good. That wasn't right. I feel hurt. We talk about it. Um, actually, our younger Stephen confronts me quite a bit as well. And then we end up arguing what I need to apologize for. Because uh, <laughs> we both can be lawyers, but at least they're, they're pointing out my blind spot. Um, Pastor Sam mentioned I've traveled to 21 countries. One of the most beautiful countries I traveled to was the country of Peru. And if you were to visit Peru, you would see these ancient ruins. And they're foundation stones that are huge. And like Turkey, uh, Peru is, a, is an earthquake-prone area. And so they have these unique 
um, ability, uh, technology, and when the next slide shows that these, there's these huge boulders, and then there are these little stones. And we, we went to the next slide. I'm not sure whether the remote is working. So when I go like this, if you, if you can just magically... Oh, I've got to point it up. Okay, all right. Well, in case I point it up and it still doesn't work, please uh, advance it. Um, so you see these big stones... Now, when the uh, Spanish conquerors came and the Catholic Church came, they thought we need to build cathedrals instead of temples. But they acknowledged they didn't have the technology. And somebody somewhere had the broad idea, well, let's just destroy the top part, keep the foundation stones, and we build our massive cathedrals on these foundational stones of the Inca temples. Brilliant, right? Yes? Think of it, what did it do in the minds of the Incas? We've been conquered, but our foundation is still there. We are still Incas. We still believe in our fertility gods. Yeah, we might bow down before Mary and so on and so forth, but our foundations remain firm. And that's why if you go to Peru, you will see there's a lot of what's called syncretism, where there's a combination of the Inca religions with Catholicism. Mary is always portrayed fat in Peru, which is not the case. Mary was in poverty. She would not have been fat. But triangle is one of their symbols. And the, the fertility goddess, they're always fat because that's a sign of fertility. And you might even see explicitly on top of houses the symbol of a bull, again, a fertility cult, and then the cross on top of it, the syncretism. But how could you blame them when that's what the Catholic priest did? Now, we might think, oh, how silly of them. Can't they see that what Jesus taught has nothing to do with fertility cults? But before we're too hard on them, let me ask you, where have we, in our Western theology, combined and be syncretistic, combined with other foundational values? What might be our blind spots? If you were to invite somebody from the slums of Nairobi, a pastor there, and you'd be courageous and ask them, tell us, what do you think are our blind spots? What might they say? Well, I would suggest... What we've done is that we kept the foundational stones of middle-class values. And we've built on top, trying to follow Jesus. And the three that I would like to highlight middle-class values are individualism. And that's why what Pastor Tim preached on last month is so vital. That runs counter middle-class values, where it's all about me. I'll get there, independence. Like people at funerals, celebrities, they keep singing this song, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. I thought, rubbish, your parents brought you into the world to start off with. They brought you up, and then all along the way, they had partners, or whether it be business or relationship. They didn't do it my way. How ridiculous. But... That's Western individualism, individualistic, and then consumerism. And then we're just destroying the earth because of our lifestyle, the ongoing consumerism and pleasure-seeking. 
So I want to be clear when I talk about Lent and fasting at the outset, I'm not asking you to squeeze a little bit more of Jesus into your already busy life. I've already said the transformation needs to be from the inside out. Or to use this analogy, to destroy the foundation of middle class values, to refute it, and then to build on the foundation that Jesus taught. And what's vital in that is that you need to identify who defines success for you. For the longest time, I was exhausted trying to gain my dad's approval. So other than trying to gain my peers' approval, because I was bullied a lot, even probably more powerful than through my teenage years, was my dad's approval. But that was really hard, because my dad was an intense perfectionist aeronautical engineer. I have painful memories where I did well in the exam. I might have come third, you know, trying to struggle in early years of high school and English and all that. I thought, oh, finally, Dad will be pleased. I, I did well in this. He looks at, it, say, a maths test. He says, son, these questions you got wrong, they're so easy. How could you be so stupid? Anything less than 100% just wasn't good enough for Dad. So who have you empowered? It's like you're saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, tell me if I'm a success at all. Now the irony of it is that growing up, you might put your parents, but when parents have young children, it's the reverse. I see so many parents now, they are wimps. They, they comply with everything their kids want because their kids threaten them with, you're not my friend. My kids used to say that, my wife and I. And we say, you're right, I am not your friend. I'm your dad. I love you and I will, I think, as uh, Dave, as it said. You say, I love you and clean up your room. It's like, <laughs> they're not contradiction. Who defines success for you? Now, let's think about how do they define success because it's their definitions that are a burden to us, that I like these voices. So if you were to survey the nearest shopping mall, like today, you know, we have Westfield near our place, and ask people, how would you define success? What might they say? Let me um, just shout it out from wherever you are. Money, and lots of it, right? I mean, it's not good just to have a little money. You need to have lots of it. But how much money do you need to be happy? How much money do you need to feel secure? Just a little bit more. No joke, there are all these surveys, people who earn $100,000, in America you could find a survey about almost anything. The people who earn $100,000, they are the, the less, less content than people who earn $50,000. And they feel less secure. They're the ones who are saying, I just need more. And it's the higher income, they need more and more. Money, but that is one of the sort of measures of success, what else? The job you have, that's right, or the titles. Just pop them up. Houses, I'm glad you say plural, because it's not enough just to own one house, right? <laughs> and then it can't be in the slum of Nairobi. It's got to be somewhere where it's uh, up on a hill or down next to the water views or whatever. This is the lake, so it must be maybe, what, on the lake? Is that, is that the, 
the ideal mansion on the lake here, but plural, because then you've got to have an investment property and so on. Yes, somebody else said here? A big boat, that's right, yes, and petrol to fill the boat. Uh, what else? Car, yes, the car you drive. Oh, power, yes, a powerful car, um, electric car. <laughs> that too. Okay, so all these, uh, so here's a bit of a list, and um, we've mentioned already some of it. Uh, nobody mentioned anything about looks, uh, but I think that is one of the things that, that's really vital now is how you look. Um, and then so some, some lists. All these are outward symbols. But let's bring it home. If we hold up the mirror, which of these definitions might be harming you? Because as long as I am obsessed about my father's approval or the approval of my peers, those who bullied me, they're harmful definitions of success. If you define success according to your achievement, there will always be somebody who achieved more. You might move into a nice new house today. I guarantee you, if your life is about the house you live in, within three years, you'll be unhappy. You'll be looking at the next house. We will suffer the never enough syndrome. And our children, you, you see that all the time. They get a new phone, they're unhappy within a year because their mates have the latest and greatest. Now, how do most Christians define success most of the time? Let's bring it home. Let's be honest. How do most Christians define success most of the time? Let me show you a list. Uh, no, there's not a glitch in the system this time. I have advanced the slide. <laughs> I would suggest most Christians most of the time define success with the same list. But we do some modifications. We say, unlike the people in the world, they might lie, steal, cheat. They might gossip, put down others so that they can climb over them. No, no. We as Christians, we will get these things through honest hard work. By faith, we name it and claim it. Or we are obedient to the Word of God. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Hey, every denomination has their formula. SIM, the mission organization I'm part of, we're interdenominational. I preach in many different denominations, and I see different denominations have different formulas, but we're leaning the ladder of success against the same wall. Is it any wonder then that we suffer similar harm? The rate of divorce among Christians, not that much better. The rate of unhappiness, discontentment, the never enough syndrome. But we don't have to live this way if we are willing to let the Spirit put a spotlight on our hearts, if we're willing to identify what might be our blind spots. So Tim Tim Timothy Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he said, money, when it takes a hold of your heart, it blinds you to what is happening it controls you through your anxieties and lusts, and it brings you to put it ahead of all other things. Why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? The counterfeit god of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics. Once you're able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you, you don't compare yourself to the rest of the world out there or to globally, 
you compare yourself to those in your bracket. The never enough syndrome. You look up, see who has more. Because my wife and I spent the bulk of our early working years um, as, as uh, missionaries, uh, as uh, pastor, we didn't have much savings by the time we bought a house in Sydney. So my parents are still in Sydney, and we thought, we're going to work all these years overseas. When we come back for um, the time at home, we'd want to be close to our parents. And because we didn't have much savings, we could only buy at the very bottom of the market. I only looked at five houses. I mean, who wants to waste their lives looking at other people's houses? But that's all we could afford. So then, some years later, our youngest, between the age of 8 and 12, was embarrassed with the house we live in. And Stephen and I would have conversations that went something like this when he would say, Dad, I wish you had stayed working as a medical doctor in Australia because then you could have earned lots of money. We could buy a bigger house, two stories with a swimming pool. You could buy me. He had a long list. <laughs> I tried to explain, Stephen, for your mum and me, life's not about the house we live in or the car we drive. It's about following Jesus, being, doing what he wants. Stephen replied, Dad, you can just say you follow Jesus and do whatever you want. People at church do that. The challenge for Stephen was that many of his friends who lived in bigger, better houses, mansions on the front, where are they on Sundays? At church. He's saying, why do they get to say they follow Jesus and have a mansion on the, on the waterfront? They're just doing whatever they want and calling it following Jesus. So let me be clear. If we follow Jesus, we would define success not according to the world's definition or what I will call it as worldly success, but according to Jesus' definition. And so this transformation track do you see now how it has everything to do with redefining success according to Jesus? It's got to be from the inside out. And so the starting point, so let me just um, remind us where we're up to, uh, the, the things that we'll be focusing on. So I've already covered alerting us to blind spots. So keep being alert. Ask people around you. Empower them to be your mirrors to show the middle-class value blind spots. And the key is to connect the real Jesus to the Bible and redefine success according to Jesus and in community. But from now on, I'm going to sprint. And uh, don't worry if you don't get everything. Uh, all the PowerPoint's going to go really fast. But uh, don't, you don't need to miss anything because you could buy the book. It's all in the book. <laughs> all right, you ready? So connect with the real Jesus of the Bible. Why do I talk about the real Jesus of the Bible? Well, 2,000 years, Jesus has been painted, portrayed, conveyed, movies, sermons, middle-class value, foundational values. So what image of Jesus do you have? An Anglo, tall, dark, handsome, maybe? Well, David Platt warns, the dangerous temptation is to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we're more comfortable with, a nice middle-class Jesus. 
a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, a Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream or Australian, India, wherever dream. We're molding Jesus into our image. And the danger now is that when we gather, we may not actually be worshipping the Jesus of the Bible. We may be worshipping ourselves. Be alert. Keep asking yourself, am I worshipping the real Jesus of the Bible? How well do you know the Gospels? I make it a yearly habit to read all the Gospels. I use... Uh, one of those Bibles that have all the versions put together, uh, the four Gospels, um, so it reads as a narrative, because I want to stay connected with the real Jesus of the Bible. So now let's turn to the words of Jesus, and I'm going to invite Andrew to read portions from Luke chapter 12. It's a familiar passage, uh, but as we read, I'd like you to be alert to identify three essentials of success in the eyes of Jesus. Because after the, uh, Andrew finishes the reading, I'll, I'll ask you to turn to the person next to you. You know, if you haven't met them and you'll um, you know, just say, let me think on my own. But as many of us, just mention one or two essentials from these portions of the Bible of success according to Jesus. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've got no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, 
where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, over to you. Just a minute. Just mention one or two things to the person next to you. The essentials to be rich towards God, to be a success in God's eyes. Okay, just a quick minute. All right, let's come together, and you can continue your conversations over morning tea. Better than talking about the weather or the football, you could talk about redefining success according to Jesus. I think the three essentials according to Jesus are to be God's children, to be kingdom-focused, and to be giving generously. Those three things. Easy, right? How hard is that? And a lot of um, Jesus' teaching is not hard to understand in theory. So I want to be clear. What I want to talk about is the action, the application. Most followers of Jesus know about being God's children, being kingdom-focused, giving generously. But what impact do those three things on their definition of success? When I say about Stephen... Um, I confess it was painful that my son thought of me as a bit of a failure compared to the dads of his friends who earned more money and bought bigger and better houses. But even on the action, even as I feel the pain, it reminded me life's not about me. It's about following Jesus. But it's also when I cry out to Jesus often. People tell me I was stupid to leave a medical career in Australia I could have had all these things, but I keep turning to Jesus and ask Jesus to fill me up with himself. But even those very moments, we're still in the same house 30 years later, when ambulance drive past, I remind myself life is very short. Why would I exchange my life for a mansion on the waterfront? And it strengthens my convictions. Life's not about me. It's about following Jesus. And there's that upward spiral. So a few application questions. We'll just go through quickly. Being God's children, if you were to lose your house, to lose your savings, how would you feel about yourself? Where is your security? Where is your identity? If you enter a room and nobody knows you, do you have to tell them about your achievements? To be dependent on God. And this is what I love about the heart, the justice of God, 
You can be a child in the slum of Dakar and be a success in the eyes of Jesus. It's not about what you own, what you possess, your achievements. So what is the foundation then? Where might you be tempted to place your identity and security, any of these, on any outward symbols, more than in being God's children? Because it's really hard to live it out. We're going to get more ridicule as followers of Jesus in Australia. When you get ridiculed, that will test your security and identity. Because in Australia, we have this whirlpool. I call it the whirlpool of self-absorption. As I said, the marketing is very powerful, constantly bombards us with all these messages that is about lifestyle, possessions, mortgage, all that sort of thing. And this is where we need to fight all that and be kingdom-focused. Again, what does that mean about be kingdom-focused? So I want to be clear that I'm not asking for you to add a little bit more of Jesus. To be fasting is not to lose weight. It's not just to feel good about ourselves. It's not to twist God's arm. So let me, let me be clear. It's not that we're trying to you know, do a hunger strike uh, to, against God. And it's not God twisting our arms either. Because if we are secure as God's children at the core, then we can be kingdom focused. It radiates out. And it affects every areas of our lives. So our family, our lifestyle, what we do with our money, the church, it's all together. We're not fragmented, being pulled apart. So anytime you feel torn and pulled apart, ask yourself, am I doing where I have self in the middle about worldly success and then I'm just feeling pulled apart? Or am I from the core of being God's child radiating out? And so if you um, into global missions, uh, maybe you haven't thought about serving the Lord globally. Well, uh, on the display there, I have some SIM brochures, um, and it's a great journey to follow Jesus and be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. The third one, giving generously, you might think, oh, that's an easy one. I'm, I'm generous. I get complimented in my home church. I've, I've given one of my pastors a hard time because he says to us, Thank you so much for your generosity. I had a go at him. How do you define generosity? How do you know if I'm generous? I would suggest that's a blind spot because once we think we are generous, we don't grow in generosity. So, okay, if I hold up the mirror, you're honest, I'm not asking you to put your hands up. How many of you give 10% and then therefore you feel generous? Is that how Jesus defined generosity? If I look at what am I giving, look at Jesus, would Jesus say, thank you for your generosity? Who did Jesus put up as a role model, as his definition of generosity? Anyone know? The widow. Not percentages, not total amount. Why did Jesus commend her? He says, all these wealthy people, they just gave a tiny bit of their surplus. That's not generosity. If you earn $100,000 a year, you give 20%, is that generous? Jesus said, she gave all that she had. So, of course, he could only do that because she had faith in God. She was being God's daughter. That's at the core. 
So he was about kingdom focus. He wanted to give to the ministry, to the work of the temple. And that way, he was able to give generously. John Piper said, the issue is not how much a person makes. The evil is in being deceived into thinking $100,000 salary must be accompanied by a $100,000 lifestyle. God had made us to be conduits of His grace. We can set a stopping point to our lifestyle. Learn to be content. It's been challenging for my wife and I to learn to be content in the same house we bought 30 years ago. But by doing that, we're not pressured by the mortgage. Interest rate could rise. It's no big deal for us because we kept our lifestyle. But that's all this only possible if we do it in community. So if you're not part of a Bible study group, please do whatever you can to join a group. And then in your group, keep deepening so that you're transparent. Don't just keep talking about football and all that. Talk about the real stuff. Where are you struggling on the transformation track, on the inside out? Where are you struggling to gain approval from your dad? Or where are you comparing yourself with your sister? She's more beautiful. Well, who says beautiful is the ultimate definition of success? Or you're comparing yourself with your brother who earns twice more than you do. Well, be honest about these things. And you may want to choose uh, to use the book as a, a Bible because uh, every chapter has group discussion questions and there are lots of reflection questions because I don't want to just download information. I want to help us to connect with the real Jesus of the Bible, reflect, be, look at mirror to ourselves, identify the blind spots, and then put into action. So the retail price is $25, um, but today it'll be 20 bucks. Um, so on Tuesday during the workshop, you will have the opportunities to work at this and be lots of application reflection for where you are, because it's really hard to apply it when we have such a wide spectrum. So there'll be application if you're leaders in the church, leaders at your workplace, uh, there'll be application because mothers, you're leaders to your children, um, so the more work we can do in ourselves, the less chance that we're going to be harmful to our kids with our definition of success. So that's what uh, we'll be doing on Tuesday. Right, let me close now with the motivation. I want to be clear. I hope no one is under guilt because that doesn't help. Condemnation, fear, all those motivation won't last. I am unapologetic in holding up the mirror to see where middle-class values might be more influential than Jesus. I'm being honest with you, it's really hard to redefine success according to Jesus. That's why we need community. But the only motivation that will last when we're ridiculed by people who don't know Jesus, when we're left behind by our peers, when people are embarrassed about the house we live in, whatever, the only motivation is love, love for God and love for people. So I'll close with this story. When I was first heading off to Africa way back in the mid-80s, my friends wanted to give me a good farewell party. At that time, a fancy hotel downtown Sydney had a chocolate festival where it was really expensive. My friends paid for me. And you come into a room about double the size of this room, maybe three times, and all these tables with everything chocolate you could imagine. There was like a buffet, eat as much as you can, uh, parfait, uh, those uh, ice cream, cheesecake. My favorites were the liqueur-scented chocolate. And I had a lot. Eventually, I had to go to the toilet. 
And I passed by another hall where there was a medical conference, a signboard, and while I was washing my hands, two doctors walked in, and I suddenly had these deep thoughts and almost heard these voices. You can enjoy this lifestyle, not because your friends are paying for you. Stay as a medical doctor in Australia. In seven to 10 years, you'll get invited to conferences like this. 15 to 20 years, you'll be earning so much money, you could easily afford to stay in hotels like this for your holidays. You're giving this up, throwing away this lifestyle. What for? Is it worth it? With those deep questions while I was doing my, uh, washing my hands, by then they were sterile. I could have done surgery. <laughs> you might be tempted with the same question. Is it worth it? when tomorrow you might be ridiculed by somebody you work with. Please remember, that's the wrong question. True, I have given up that lifestyle. I can't afford to stay in hotels for my holidays like that. But why did I give up that lifestyle? The question needs to always be, is he worth it? Is Jesus worth that much? And I had one of those rare, unnerving experiences. As if the Lord Jesus walked into that toilet and asked me, Omar, am I worth this much to you? The presence of Jesus felt so real, I almost cried, and I wanted to shout, Yes, Jesus, you're worth this much, and much more, because you died for me. Paul puts it best in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15. For Christ's love motivates us, compels us, because we're convinced that he died for all. That those who live, those of us who've received this gift of life should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. Jesus is worthy of my entire devotion to refute worldly success and bring him joy and delight. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped by people of all nations. Jesus is worth that much. Will you stand as we close in prayer? Let me give you just a moment of quietness for you to respond to the Lord Jesus. Maybe he's asking you, what am I worthy of from you? Maybe you want to cry out from the depth of your heart, yes, Jesus, you're worth that much and declare to him what he is worthy of from you. Maybe there's someone here, Jesus has been speaking to you about being his witness, being more bold and courageous, you're afraid of being ridiculed, or to make radical changes in your life that you could invest more time into being his witness, being a blessing, or to be radical in your giving, or maybe to be willing to serve him as his witness overseas.
Our Father, we come to you and thank you that we can come to you just as we are. I sense many of my sisters and brothers want to acknowledge that far too often we have been caught up by middle-class values, worldly success, materialism, And sometimes we feel helpless because these are so powerful and pervasive. And so whatever it is that God has been uh, convicting you about, as we've already been reminded earlier, that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we confess, let us receive His forgiveness, His cleansing. And I sense many of us want to cry out, Lord Jesus, would you please make yourself more real to us, that we would see you, Jesus, that you would outshine the glitters of this world, that to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servants, would mean more to us than the applause of people around us or the approval of others. And we also can't do it by ourselves, Lord. Please help all of us to journey in community. Would you shine your light upon this community of faith and radiate out to this community and to the ends of the earth? Would you raise up people from this community of faith who would redefine success according to you and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. As we go, keep receiving God's grace and be motivated by His love to bring joy to His heart. We commit one another to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.